Well, good morning, Forest View. It is good to see you. Happy March break. For those of you who that is a relevant thing, uh, happy daylight savings time. For those of you who are staring at me with death stares right now, uh, to those of you with little kids, and it's just like, doesn't matter, they woke up at the exact same time. And then for those of you with other aged children, or maybe just yourself, and you woke up and you're like, oh, this is the worst day. And then there's the other stage of life. People were like, this day is fine. This is great. Actually, my kids technically slept in today, so it's great. Well, it is good to be here with you. If we haven't met before, my name is Nat Evans. I'm the lead pastor here. And this morning, we are going to be looking at John chapter 10. So I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, open it up. Throughout this Lenten season, as Cole alluded to earlier on, we have been taking a look at the different I am statements that Jesus makes throughout the Gospel of John. And so we started with talking about Jesus and his claim that I am the bread of life, that, that essentially he is, is God's sustenance and life given to the people or to people, to his creation. Last week, Craig walked us through what it meant when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. This morning, we're going to be looking at one that goes, I am the door, which, you know, bread of life, that sounds delicious. Light, that sounds helpful. Doors, okay, interesting. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. And I want to let you know a little bit just ahead of time, as we're walking through this passage, is that it's helpful to understand it best in, in the context of the narrative or the story that is unfolding that John is revealing, because this isn't a conversation or a statement that just pops up out of nowhere, but rather it grows out of a dialogue or a conversation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders of his time. And so if you were here last week, or if you listened to the message from Craig last week, then you are in a good place. There's going to be a lot of groundwork already done. And if you haven't, I want to encourage you to go back and to listen to that um, at, at your own time. You don't have to do it right now. Don't get up and leave. Uh, but I would encourage you to go and to check that out because I think it helps lay out exactly what is happening here in this passage. What so often happens when we look at the different I am statements that Jesus uses, we get to the part of what, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then usually what happens is, is that this statement, I am the door, gets merged with Jesus' statement, I am the good shepherd. If you've been around the church for a significant amount of time, you're probably familiar with hearing this claim. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And in many ways, this kind of thought, the, I, am a door, lead, I am the door, leads into this conversation around the good shepherd. There's a lot of overlap. But this morning, I want to specifically look at Jesus' statement, I am the door. Next week, we will be looking at Jesus' statement, I am the good shepherd. Now, if you go and you look at different pastors or sermons from other churches that sometimes will go through and maybe look at the I am statements, often what will happen is these two things will get conflated into one message. I am the door and I am the good shepherd. And again, as I said, there's a lot of overlap, but this morning, I think there is enough distinctive elements to Jesus' claim, I am the door, that it warrants us taking time to look at it by itself. And not just because I think that this statement stands on its own, but I think that this statement has profound things to say, not only to the original hearers, but to us today as people who want to be followers of Jesus. And so before we dive into the text and before we start to look at this together, I want to invite you to join me in prayer. Would you do that? Gracious God, we thank you that you speak, that you've spoken 
all of the universe into existence, that you have spoken definitively through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you continue to speak to us today through your Holy Spirit. I pray that as we take time to explore this claim that Jesus makes, I am the door, Lord, that it would move us deeper into relationship with you. That it would wake us up to the parts of us that are so far away from who you created us to be. And at the same time, they would make us more and more aware of your grace and presence in our lives. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, John chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to join me. Here's what Jesus says. Again, he's engaging the religious leaders. He's been just having a debate about him being the light of the world and essentially this debate about spiritual blindness. The religious leaders, they can't see who Jesus is saying that he is. They essentially, I don't know if they can't see or they're refusing to see. And this is how Jesus responds to them, to their spiritual blindness. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Now, Jesus is using shepherding imagery, which for us, far removed from more of the rural areas where you have animals roaming around, is something that we're mostly far, pretty far removed. In fact, most of us, our only experience of shepherds, unless you've traveled to some countries where that's popular, is through Christmas pageants, right? It's the shepherds that come to visit the baby Jesus. But it's important to know that in Jesus' world, shepherds were everywhere, it would not be unlikely that if you were to go out for a walk or go out to do work, you would see the herds of sheep being herded around or different shepherds looking after their sheep. And one important element that is necessary to know about this image is the image of a sheepfold or, or maybe sometimes called the pen. And so here we actually just have an image. Uh, now, typically when we think about wild animals, and maybe for us, we th or sorry, wild animals, we think about herds and stuff like that. We would think about them being in kind of fenced in area. And how it would work for shepherds is they would lead their sheep around, they would graze, and then they would take them into the sheepfold, something like this, usually a pile of collection of rocks where they would go in and they would be kept safe in the night. And this would protect the animals, from the sheep from wild animals or, or maybe from rival shepherds who wanted to steal them. Uh, this uh, is a picture of it. This is something that is probably out in the fields or the mountains. Often what would happen is actually the sheepfold would usually be closer to the home of the person who owned the sheep. Usually it was almost seen as an extension of the house. This is actually in modern day Jordan. And uh, this is still, you see shepherding is still something that happens. And it gives you a little bit of a picture around what the sheepfold is. Now, one of the things that you need to have with a sheepfold, in order for sheep to get in, you need to have an entrance for them to get in. And so you would have some sort of gate or opening. Jesus here is grabbing on to this shepherding language, which would have been language that was popular and just would have made complete sense to Jesus's audience. 
But here he is making a claim about himself as well, just looking at the text. A few things that are important to be aware of. Number one, that when Jesus uses the language of shepherd, this was a metaphor that was often used in Jesus' time to describe both God as being the good ultimate shepherd, as well as those who were in rule or who were in positions of authority. Specifically, the king or religious leaders were often viewed as being shepherds. And the sheep were understood to represent the people of Israel. They were God's covenant people, the people through whom God was working out his mission in the world. And so here we have Jesus addressing accusations that are being made against him. Essentially, the, he is a, a, a catching or heading off the argument that he is in a sense a bad or evil shepherd. The spiritual blindness of the religious leaders, they look at Jesus and they say, you are not a good shepherd. And so Jesus' response to them is to say, well, look at how I'm approaching the people of Israel. Look how I'm approaching God's chosen people. Jesus goes on to say this in verse two, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. And so Jesus here is calling their attention and and essentially giving authority to his ministry. He's saying, well, look at how I approach things. He's saying, look at how I'm engaging and interacting with God's people. And then he goes on to say this, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. And then he goes on to say this, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. So Jesus is addressing, he's saying, the reason why people are responding to the words that I'm saying, the reason why people are seeking out my teaching, the reason why they're coming and experiencing healing and transformation, both with the words that I'm speaking and the acts that I do with power is because they see and they recognize that I am the shepherd. I am not a thief and I'm not a robber. Essentially going with this, Jesus is essentially saying, so you guys need to open up your eyes and see this as well. Well, partly because some of Jesus's metaphors are just confusing and hard to understand, but even more so because of the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders, we hear that this conversation does not go over well. In fact, it just leaves them with looking a lot of like, huh, what expressions on their face? And so in verse six, it says this, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So again, if everything I've just said to you is confusing, you're in good company. It also makes me feel a little bit better because if everything I'm saying doesn't make sense, it's like, well, Jesus was kind of confusing when he spoke it too. Jesus goes on then to say this. He changes things up and he begins to use a different metaphor to describe himself, grabbing aspects of the the conversation that he's already had, grabbing images from the shepherding metaphors that he's used, but he begins to change it up. And so here are the two, uh, I guess, three verses that I wanna focus on today. John chapter 10, verses seven to eight, Jesus says this. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Then Jesus states this again, even more bluntly, even more boldly. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, 
he will be saved and i will go in and out and find and will go in and out and find pasture and he says this the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy i came that they may have life and have it abundantly the statement i am the door it might be one that you have heard before you didn't mean to rhyme that but it happened uh, is, is a statement that maybe you've heard, you've heard Jesus say that before, you've heard other people refer to Jesus saying that before. And often for me, when I originally heard this terminology of Jesus being the door, this, this, this entry point in the, uh, in the sheep uh, um, hold, I had this picture of Jesus the bouncer. Okay? I, um, I don't know if any of you have ever been to a situation where you had a bouncer. I remember this experience I had where I was in my first year of university, it was about November, December in Kitchener-Waterloo, and I, uh, some guys in my residence came and said, hey, we're going out to the club tonight, want to come? And I said, okay, I've never been to a club before, what do I need to do? Because um, it was not something that had ever been on my radar before, and they're like, okay, well, first off, leave, I, I show up, I've got my jacket on, they're like, first, leave your jacket in your room, we're going to take a taxi over, you're not going to want to have your jacket in the club, because it's going to cost a bunch of money to like put a you know, go and put it in the, the, uh, the coat hold and everything. And so I'm like, okay, sure. And so we go and we catch a taxi. We drive to this club in downtown Kitchener, hop out of the taxi and go, and I can hear the thumping boom, 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 music happening, right? And I'm ready to go into the club. It's cold. It's like end of November. And we go there and I start walking towards the door. And my friend's like, no, 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 you can't go in. We got to go. And there's this lineup that goes around the side of the club, and there are these, essentially these kind of like these velvety, ropey looking type things. And there is a guy, a big, big guy, standing at the front, and he's opening it and closing it to certain people. And so we're waiting in line, and it's cold. I'm in my t-shirt, because I didn't know what proper club attire looks like. And we're waiting in line, and I remember we finally got up to the front, uh, and really what we'd noticed that in front of us, it was predominantly women who were in front of us. And so as we get to the front, and what happens is we're there, and then um, we see people come out, and we think that means that we are going to be the next ones to go in. But he's like, no, 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 no. And he starts waving in other people or letting other women who are walking by go right in. And so my friends and I were kind of just standing out there in the cold going like, well, wait, why aren't we allowed to go in? But we look at this guy, and there's like, well, we're not going to challenge him because he's very big and very strong, and he looks like he would have no problem with harming any of us if we decide to step out of line. Sometimes I think we get this picture of Jesus, and when we hear, we talk about Jesus being the door, it's like he is the guy who stands there, and you decide who gets to come in and who gets to go out. And sometimes it seems like that decision, those decisions are made over arbitrary things. For some of us, those decisions, they seem to be driven by like Jesus' own biases, but I think the invitation that this passage invites us in is to see this idea of Jesus being the door as something so much more and profound than simply as the one who stands at the door and decides who's in and who is out. Going back to verse 9, Jesus says this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It seems the thing that Jesus is describing 
is not, hey, I'm standing at the door deciding who gets in and gets out. He's saying, I am the entryway into the life that God created you for. The word there that he uses is this word pasture, which would immediately, for this predominantly Jewish audience, would have ignited pictures and images about Yahweh God and his relationship with his people, and specifically, a very popular psalm that many of you are probably familiar with. I want to read it, just the opening verses for you this morning. Psalm 23, Jesus says, or sorry, the psalm says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, for many of us, specifically who have been raised and steeped in the Christian tradition, we hear this, and the immediate response we hear when Jesus says, I am the door, and talks about bringing us in and out to pasture, the immediate image that it brings up in for us is this idea of heaven, eternal life, paradise, after we die. And yet this psalm brings a different picture of what God means when he invites us into pasture which is one of walking in connection and intimacy with God. Let me just look at the images it describes. He walks with me. He leads me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He he brings me to places that restore my soul in the midst of a world that is constantly trying to to take advantage of our hungers and thirsts and wants and desires, that pounces on our securities to to make us feel like we are so much less than we are supposed to be, that that is constantly building us up in all the negative ways and and tearing us down in all the ways that are ultimately good and meaningful, there's this picture of a life of deep connection and intimacy with God, of a God who cares about our well-being a God who wants to walk with us and to know us and to restore us. Now, it is absolutely true that through Jesus, we are given the gift of life after death. We might just simply call that heaven. And Jesus is certainly the way in which we get to heaven. Jesus is how we get to heaven. We don't get there through our own good works. We don't get there through believing all of the exactly right things. We we don't get there by making sure that our good deeds balance out our bad deeds. Jesus is how we get to heaven. But Jesus here, as he describes himself as the doors, inviting us to see him has more than just a plane ticket to the afterlife. Jesus here is saying to us, not just this is how you get into heaven, but rather this is how heaven gets in to you. Jesus is how we get into heaven, and Jesus is how heaven gets into us. Which brings us to the term that Jesus uses to describe what he came to bring each and every one of us. Abundant life. Sometimes it's translated as life to the full. Now, if you were to go and read through all four of the different gospels, you'll notice there's some significant differences. There's what, just some biblical scholar language. There's something we call the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you read through those gospels, you'll notice that they are all very similar. There are some differences. There are some stories that appear in one and not the other. But for the most part, they cover the same ground, and there's often stories that are repeated over and over and over again. And then you get to the Gospel of John, and if you've ever read through that, it is like a completely different animal than those other Gospels. 
And one thing that is interesting, that if you were to read through the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find that there is a term that Jesus uses over and over and over again. It's the term, the kingdom of God, or specifically in the gospel of Matthew, he says the kingdom of heaven. But those, words can be, those terms can be used interchangeably. And if you read through all three of those gospels, you'll find that Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven 84 times between those three gospels. When you get to the gospel of John, there's only a few references to the kingdom of God. But there is another word that Jesus makes central to his ministry. It's the word life. The Greek for it is the word zoe. And when we read that, it's not just simply about breathing in and out, although that might be part of it. But when Jesus uses this term, this suggests a deep connection and intimacy with God. This is about a life-transforming relationship that reshapes the way that you see everything, the way that you see God, the way that you see others, and the way that you see yourself. This is a life-transforming relationship that, that is not just simply about um, doing good things, but rather being driven and motivated by love and, and love for God and for others and to live in a certain way that is distinct and in line with the life of God and is what we will ultimately be living and experiencing in the life to come. This is abundant life. And Jesus says to his listeners, he says, this is why I came. This is what I bring. I came to bring you abundant life. This is the kind of life that you were created for. But it's important to G that Jesus acknowledges that there is another option, that there is other people coming with other views about what life is supposed to look like. Jesus here is specifically, he's engaging the religious leaders of his time. And in this, Jesus is essentially calling them thieves and robbers. Now, helpful translation work for us just to be aware of as we read through this passage is that when Jesus says thieves and robbers, he might mean thieves in terms of people who steal things, but it's also a word that's used for insurrectionists. This would have been language that would have been used for people who thought that they could somehow bring God's kingdom through their own merits and often through violent revolution. Jesus here is addressing a certain kind of shepherds who are leading the people of God away from the abundant life that Jesus came to offer. Jesus is essentially confronting this misguided way of seeing. He's saying, you believe that my kingdom and you believe that abundant life is rooted in your merits and how good you are and how ethical you are. And Jesus is saying, abundant life is actually just something that comes through me. It's a gift that I give. It's a gift that comes through me and that you are invited into to experience. In the ancient world, it was all about getting your act together before God. And that's what led you into abundant life. And Jesus says, no, no, how good you are doesn't lead you in. You experience abundant life as you enter into the life that I invite you into. And yet this is still something that we hear today. I mean, if we were to even ask questions, what does abundant life look like in our world and in our time? I'm sure we would hear all sorts of different answers. Abundant life might look like lots and lots of travel, 
going to exotic places. It might look like having a beautiful sculpted body that people envy. It might look like being seen as incredibly successful in your career. It might be seen as being holden, or it might be just having a large family or, or having a certain perspective people see and view your family. There are all sorts of different things that our culture lifts up as what abundant life is all about. Recently, in the last number of months, I was having a conversation with a, a man from our congregation, and he was sharing, sorry, not from our congregation, he's not from our congregation, and he was sharing that he's feeling really overwhelmed with work because he wants to achieve a significant amount of success and he's worried that he would feel like a failure if he didn't squeeze the most out of the opportunities he had in front of him. And so it means he's glued to his phone. It means that when he's away on vacation with his family, he's got the phone right there every time it buzzes or chirps. It means that when he's putting his kids or trying to help put his kids to bed, sometimes he'll have to stop because he'll have to go and deal with some emails. It's amazing that we hold this view of abundant life, of success, of climbing the ladder so high, and yet we're seeing it be so destructive to his life. And the same can be said for those of us who idolize our physical appearance and going to great lengths to, to prolong our health or to, to sculpt this particular muscle so it looks really good or whatever it might be. And yet we see people destroying their lives in order to do it. I remember a conversation I had with a, when I was a young adults pastor with a young woman who got dragged to our young adults program, no faith background. And I remember listening to her share and talk. And, and one of the things that we were, she got talking about organized religion, and she was very happy to let me know that she was not interested in organized religion. And I said, well, we're not that organized. And, and her response was, she says, I find it psychologically claustrophobic. Like, I want to have an open mind, and I want to be open to all these different experiences that are in front of me, and I don't want anything that might close me off to them. In fact, for many in our culture, we would look at this image of a sheep pen, a sheepfold, and we'd go, there's like that idea of like, oh, I don't want boundaries and walls and, and all that sort of thing. And yet Jesus is saying, I didn't come to shut you off from human experience. I actually came to open you up to it, one that's not marred by selfishness and sin not one that has becomes a slave to having to express yourself individually, but rather one that invites you into walk and learn from the one true love that actually cares for us and has our best interest in mind. One who doesn't want to take advantage of us and lead us into destruction, but rather to lead us into life. David Foster Wallace, the writer and philosopher in his uh, his, uh, he originally gave this in a university uh, a commencement address, but later on it was take, his speech was put into a book called This is Water. And David Foster Wallace is not a Christian. That'd actually be apparent in what he shares in this quote. But there's some profound things that even he saw in our world that I think are important to be aware of. He is talking about our proclivity, the human proclivity, to pursue worshiping, whether it is a god or a deity, or whether it is something else that we hold up to be our own personal gods or deities. He says this, because here's something else that's weird but true. 
In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some invaluable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. David Foster Wallace is well aware of what Jesus was saying some 2,000 years before when he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The invitation that Jesus extends to us through his introduction, I am the door, is to enter into the abundant life that he created us for not one motivated by our own selfishness or self-expression, but rather one that we discover as we submit our lives in faith to the greatest human being who has ever lived and say, we want to be like you. And we entrust all that we have and all that we are to him and to his saving work on the cross. This morning, we're gonna take communion together. And as we do that, we are reminded of the grace that permeates everything that God touches. We are reminded of the grace of just simply breath in our lungs, the gift of life. And even more so, we are reminded of the grace of the abundant life that comes through Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Here's how it's gonna work. We're gonna have servers at the back and at the front. We have some real bread, um, and we realize that for some people, you're, that's great, you're excited about that. And we also realize for some within our community, you're still in that place of needing to be cautious around what you touch or what's been touched. And so we also have our typical kind of the, the all-in-one deal kind of containers that are available for you. And so those are there at each station for you to take as well. Um, we have tongs that are being used um, to serve you the bread. So if you're coming up and you'd like real bread, we just invite you to hold your hand, hand or hands out in front of you, and we'll just place that piece of bread into your hands. But as we prepare to take communion together, my invitation for you is to reflect on, are there thieves and robbers in your life? Ones that you're worshiping, ones that you're seeking after, ones that you're looking for to provide you with the abundant life Jesus came to give you. And as you prepare to come and receive the bread and the cup, may you remember what Jesus has done and the life that he invites you into. I want to invite the band to come forward. I want to invite our servers to come forward. Let's take a few seconds to be quiet.
I'm gonna pray, the band will play, and when you are ready, come forward to receive or go back. We have tables at the back where you can also receive communion.